When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we welcome you to this edition of Tuesday People, the podcast. I'm your host, Mitch Alpham, the author of the book Tuesdays with Maury, which is in its 25th anniversary year and enjoying an incredible resurgence around the country uh, thanks to some TV appearances, but thanks more to, I think, just readers in general who have rediscovered the lessons that, that I got a chance to witness firsthand sitting alongside my old college professor as he was dying from Lou Gehrig's disease. And it seems that those lessons are resonating more today than they ever have, even maybe a bit more than when the book first came out 25 years ago. And Lisa Goitsch is alongside, as always, my friend and producer of this program. Hello, Mitch. Hi. Good to see you. Long time no see. One week to be exact. At least a whole week, yeah. (laughs) So um, today I want to talk briefly about trauma that we have when we're young and how to look at it perhaps in a different way than we often do. When I say that, a, a common form of viewing childhood trauma is how it uh, affects us negatively in our current lives. We're haunted by things that happened when we were children. We never get over them. We have our personality traits formed as a result of the things that take place. And I've been giving this some thought because right now in the house, as I speak to you, we have three of our kids from Haiti who are here. Wow. Young kids, young kids. Uh, We have four who are here from college, one who's about to try to enter medical school. They're all sleeping sleeping in the house right now. Wait, so we have seven 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 additional people in your house. Seven additional people in the house. And then there's there's, uh, three other ones just 20 minutes away down in the university here. Yeah. And with little exception, all of them have gone through traumas when they were young. Terrible traumas in some cases. Uh, One of them for example, had to walk the streets before, obviously, he came to our orphanage, had to walk the streets with plastic bottles tied around with rubber bands as his shoes because he had no shoes. Oh, my goodness. He walked the streets looking for money and was told by his father not to come home until he could find somehow get his hands on a coin or some piece of money in some shape or form. And this went on for a long time. Others were were, uh, victims of abandonment. Uh, One was left out in the woods when, thank God, he was too young to know, but he was a baby and uh, then suffered a a brain trauma when he was one years old. And I look at all these kids and in in their own ways, they were shaped by these things, uh, but they're amazing kids and they are studying and in various stages of being on their way towards a productive and good 
and hopefully happy life. Yeah. So it got me thinking about Maury and what we haven't talked about a lot over the many, many weeks of this podcast is Maury's youth. We talk a lot about Maury's old age, obviously, and his, and his yeah. dying, uh, you know, when he shared his lessons with me. But we didn't spend very little time talking about who Maury was as a young person. So I want to share with you today, I'm going to do something I don't often do. I'm going to read from Tuesdays with Maury, because if I were to tell it to you, I would basically be doing the same thing. I might as well do it with a little better language. Right, with words that are perfect. <laughs> well, they're not perfect. They've just been combed over a lot more. Right, right. Uh, but with, with a point being at the end of how it shaped him. Now, I think you might be surprised to find out Maury's upbringing. I, I, I don't know how well you remember this, Lisa, so I don't mean to put you on the spot. Uh, you know, I've been, I know it's been some time since you actually read through the pages of Tuesdays with Maury, even though we talk about them all the time here. Do you recall Maury's childhood? Because if not, I'm going to ask you a, a, a question. I know that his mother. No, no, no. Tell, don't, uh, don't, 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 don't share with me. Just, you know. Oh, just yes, tell I me do recall. I do recall pieces of it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. So then it's not really fair to ask you the question, what do you imagine Maury's childhood would be? I think some people would think that seeing him on the Nightline tapes or listening to some of the wisdom that we've played here week after week, they would think that he was probably brought up by some kindly academic types. Yeah, and that's, that's where he's like, yeah, that's where he developed his love of, of learning and reading. Obviously he wasn't raised richly because he had no affinity for money or, or, or fame or celebrity or attention or things like that. But, you know, maybe a, a pleasant, uh, academic. Yeah. A nice life. Right? Yeah, know, with, you know, like smart people. That's with smart people picture. around. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 So let me now share with you what, Maury's real childhood life was like, okay? Because uh, it's very interesting to compare this, okay? And this is from the book. And like I say, it will culminate in the point that I'm trying to make. This is from a chapter called The Professor. He was eight years old. A telegram came from the hospital. And since his father, a Russian immigrant, could not read English, Maury had to break the news, reading his mother's death notice like a student in front of the class. We regret to inform you, he began. On the morning of the funeral, Maury's relatives came down the steps of his tenement building on the poor Lower East Side of Manhattan. The men wore dark suits, the women wore veils. The kids in the neighborhood were going off to school, and as they passed, Maury looked down, ashamed that his classmates would see him this way. One of his aunts, a heavyset woman, grabbed Maury and began to wail, What will you do without your mother? What will become of you? Maury burst into tears. His classmates ran away. At the cemetery, Maury watched as they shoveled dirt into his mother's grave. He tried to recall the tender moments they had shared when she was alive. She had operated a candy store until she got sick, after which she mostly slept or sat by the window, looking frail and weak. Sometimes she would yell out for her son to get her some medicine, and young Maury, playing stickball in the street, would pretend he did not hear her. In his mind, he believed he could make the illness go away by ignoring it. How else can a child confront death? So far, am I uh, matching up with what you thought? 
everybody, or is this jolting you a little bit? We'll continue. Maury's father, whom everyone called Charlie, had come to America to escape the Russian army. He worked in the fur business, but was constantly out of a job. Uneducated and barely able to speak English, he was terribly poor, and the family was on public assistance much of the time. Their apartment was a dark, cramped, depressing place behind the candy store. They had no luxuries, no car. Sometimes to make money, Maury and his younger brother David would wash porch steps together for a nickel. So much for the comfortable yeah, yeah, life right. that we were assessing. Or the and at a time, you think about the time that it was, too, because that's like right around the Depression, right? That's what, exactly yeah. during the Depression. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, and as far as the education of his parents, we just learned about that as well. His father yes. didn't speak English, totally uneducated. Yeah. After their mother's death, the two boys were sent off to a small hotel in the Connecticut woods where several families shared a large cabin in a communal kitchen. The fresh air might be good for the children, the relatives thought. Maury and David had never seen so much greenery, and they ran and played in the fields. One night after dinner, they went for a walk and it began to rain. Rather than come inside, they splashed around for hours. The next morning when they awoke, Maury hopped out of bed. Come on, he said to his brother, get up. I can't. What do you mean? David's face was panicked. I can't move. He had polio. Of course, the rain did not cause this, but a child Maury's age could not understand that. For a long time, as his brother was taken back and forth to a special medical home, and was forced to wear braces on his legs, which left him limping, Maury felt responsible. So in the mornings he went to synagogue by himself, because his father was not a religious man, and he stood among the swaying men in their long black coats, and he asked God to take care of his dead mother and his sick brother. And in the afternoons he stood at the bottom of the subway steps and hawked magazines, turning whatever money he made over to his family to buy food. In the evenings, he watched his father eat in silence, hoping for, but never getting, a show of affection, communication, or warmth. At nine years old, he felt as if the weight of a mountain were on his shoulders. All this happened before mm. he was That's, ten. Man. We're not done yet. But a saving embrace came into Maury's life the following year. His new stepmother, Ava. She was a short Romanian immigrant with plain features, curly brown hair, and the energy of two women. She had a glow that warmed the otherwise murky atmosphere his father had created. She talked when her new husband was silent. She sang songs to the children at night. Maury took comfort in her soothing voice, her school lessons, her strong character. When his brother returned from the medical home, still wearing leg braces from the polio, the two of them shared a rollaway bed in the kitchen of their apartment, and Ava would kiss them goodnight. Maury waited on those kisses like a puppy waits on milk and he felt deep down that he had a mother again. There was no escaping their poverty, however. They lived now in the Bronx in a one-bedroom apartment in a red brick building on Tremont Avenue, next to an Italian beer garden where the old men played bocce on summer evenings. Because of the Depression, Maury's father found even less work in the fur business. Sometimes the family sat at the dinner table, and all Ava could put out was bread. What else is there, David would ask. Nothing else she would answer. When she tucked Maury and David into bed, she would sing to them in Yiddish. Even the songs were sad and poor. There was one about a girl trying to sell her cigarettes. 
It went, please buy my cigarettes. They are dry, not wet by rain. Take pity on me. Take pity on me. Still, despite their circumstances, Maury was taught to love and to care and to learn. Ava would accept nothing less than excellence in school because she saw education as the only antidote to their poverty. She herself went to night school to improve her English. Maury's love for education was hatched in her arms. He studied at night by the lamp at the kitchen table, and in the mornings he would go to synagogue to say Yisker, the memorial prayer for the dead, for his mother. He did this to keep her memory alive. Incredibly, Maury had been told by his father never to talk about his mother. Charlie wanted young David to think Ava was his natural mother. This was a terrible burden to Maury. For years, the only evidence he had of his real mother was the telegram announcing her death. He had hidden it the day it had arrived, and he would keep it the rest of his life. By the way, I saw wow. that. I saw that telegram. You did? Oh, yeah. Uh... When Maury was a teenager, his father took him to a fur factory where he worked. This was during the Depression. The idea was to get Maury a job. He entered the factory and immediately felt as if the walls had closed in around him. The room was dark and hot, the windows covered with filth, and the machines were packed tightly together, churning like train wheels. The fur hairs were flying, creating a thickened air, and the workers, sewing the pelts together, were bent over their needles as the boss marched up and down the rows, screaming for them to go faster. Maury could barely breathe. He stood next to his father, frozen with fear, hoping the boss wouldn't scream at him too. During lunch break, his father took Maury to the boss and pushed him in front of him, asking if there was any work for him. But there was barely enough work for the adult laborers, and no one was giving it up. This for Maury was a blessing. He hated the place. He made another vow that he kept to the end of his life. He would never do any work that exploited someone else, and he would never allow himself to make money off the sweat of others. What will you do, Ava would ask him. I don't know, he would say. He ruled out law because he didn't like lawyers, and he ruled out medicine because he couldn't take the sight of blood. What will you do? It was only through default that the best professor I ever had became a teacher. We'll be back with more Tuesday People right after this. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, you listen to wow. that, that brutal series of events over the course of Maury's childhood. I mean, if you can even call it a childhood. Yeah, it was, that's... It was just so devoid of even, even his brother. Come on, let's play. Oh, I can't right. have polio. Right. I know, right? Like everything, he, he was thrown into grown-up world at a very young age and with all of his other things that happened to him. But you know what? Maybe that's what formed him. You know, that's what made the Maury that, that became the Maury that, you know, and loved, you know? Exactly. Well, that's the point that I'm trying to make. That's the point that I'm trying to make that out of all the traumas that we endure, they shape us. But it doesn't always mean that they ruin us. Yeah. Do you see? It doesn't always mean that they ruin us. It can make us better. It can make us kinder. It can make us more sensitive. And it can make us better in the end. Yeah. Now, Maury talked a lot about his mother and the fact that, you know, she died when he was eight. So here it was 70 years later. She was talking. He was still talking. And I remember when he spoke to me about the time that she would yell out the window. And he would pretend sometimes that he didn't hear her because he didn't want to be interrupted. He didn't want to be embarrassed. Here it is right here. She was sick for about two years before she died. So the whole thing started at age six, the lack of mothering, so to speak. And that's a devastating thing for a youngster. And I don't remember feeling the lack, but I do remember, like, well, how should I put it? Being resistant. I remember one vision of I was playing stickball, you know, on the street. She'd call me out of the window to come and get her me- get medicine for her. And I sort of keep her waiting because I resented the fact that... She was sick and she needed and medicine. Yeah, right. And I had to give up my pleasure. Right. You know how kids are. So that and the living condition, we lived in the back of the store, it has a very dark and very oppressive quality for me. And that, so a good part of my early childhood has that quality of depressiveness and being constricted mm-hmm. and being unable, really, to 
do the kinds of things kids ordinarily want to do. So you see, he talks about his wow. childhood as being so dark, depressing, that, that moment with his mother, but, but it made him sensitive. It made yeah. him kind. It made him want to give time to his own children. And that's why, if anything, more he spoiled his kids a little bit, he would say, with love. I mean, he, he, but they were, they were, if you've ever met Maury's kids, if you've ever had a chance to see him with his kids, it was so much loving attention, so much pride, so much fawning, so much physical affection. Uh-huh. You know, I, I think one of the reasons that Maury was always hugging all the time is because he didn't get enough of it when he was a child. Yeah. And, you know, here he had this opportunity to kind of do it again. And so, the point I'm trying to make by all this is that we can't do much about what happened to us when we were children. If you right. listen to that story that I read from the book, you basically walk away from it thinking that Maury was a victim, right? And you kind of feel like poor, poor Maury, such a victim of circumstance, such a victim of, of things that happened that he couldn't get away from. But and that's true. Many of us are victims of our childhood because we don't have any say about it. And so yeah. it is it is what what it was and we can't change it. But you don't need to be an adult victim of your childhood trauma. And in Maury's case, and through pl- plenty of therapy over the years and and self-examination, this isn't something that you just snap a, uh, a finger and suddenly everything that went wrong in your childhood is gone and has turned into something positive, but it can be so. It can be so. You don't need to be a victim of your circumstances. You can be a beneficiary of negative circumstances. You can learn from them, grow from them, become in some ways the opposite of them, which I think in yeah. Maury's case is almost entirely true, and and uh, and be better. And I think if you look back on, I don't know if there's anything that you think of can think of off the top of your head, Lisa that happened to you when you were a child, um, that you have corrected in your course of life in terms of how you treat people or how you do things or whatever. I know that, for example, with our kids in Haiti, much of my sensitivity to them, um, for example, I'll give you a small, small example. When I was growing up, uh, academic excellence was expected in my family. Mm-hmm. And as a result, very little fuss was made if you did well. And a lot of attention was paid if you did not. Ah. So in, in my family's case, I always did well. My brother did not always do well. When I would come home with a report card, um, we would sit at the table and my parents would discuss all the report cards and they would spend forever talking to my brother about how he needed to be better, how he could be better. And this wasn't satisfactory and that grade. And he's better than that. And that grade. And they didn't even discuss my report card. Like how good your report card was. No, right? <laughs> they didn't. And I remember my father once saying to me, well, I expect nothing less. Ah, and, see, and I, you know, maybe he was, who knows? I just remember the words. Maybe he was being facetious or maybe he was just didn't have time at the time. Or maybe he thought that that was the best way to inspire well, me was to say that. But it hurt me. It hurt me. You know, I can still remember thinking that I expect nothing less. I, I felt like, well, then I'm basically set up 
for failure here. I, if I do everything right, all it is is meeting your expectations. And if I slip at all, I'm going to disappoint you. Right. But you know, probably what it was in reality is that they just felt like, okay, this one's good. He's, he's, he's fully cooked. There's nothing we need to do. Like, it's probably like they just, it was the ease of your, you know, intellect that was, that made their life easier. But it wasn't correct. It wasn't correct. And I can, I can say that with all love to my parents, it wasn't correct. So when I deal with our kids in Haiti, for example, the ones that do well, I am always sensitive to the ones that excel. And I always pull them aside and say, listen, I want you to know something. What you did was really hard. And the fact that you did it before doesn't change the fact that it was hard to do it again. And you're, you're doing amazing work. And don't think that because I don't spend a lot of time talking about it or whatever, that that doesn't mean I'm not impressed. I'm really impressed. That's phenomenal what you did. And every time that you do it again is just as impressive. And, mm-hmm. and it's not just because you did it before. It doesn't mean you can do it again. I've seen people slip from being really good to going backwards. So you haven't and way to go, way to continue. I always put an emphasis on that. And you can see in their eyes and many of them, it's like, wow, somebody's actually, you know, like noticing that right. to do well is actually hard work. And yeah. and not yeah. like, yeah, like you said, oh, you're 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 cooked. You're fine. You're good. We don't need yeah, we, you know, we don't fine. need to bother with let's, you. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go spend time with the troubled one. So uh, that's just a tiny example of how you take something that happened when you were younger and turn it into something that can be positive for you when you're old. Yeah. I mean, I did have these things. I think about my dad. My dad had a very hard upbringing, probably a lot like Maury's. It was deep in the depression. His family had no money. His mom apparently was not nice. Um, uh, there was drinking, a lot of drinking involved within the family and uh, people coming in and out and living in the house. And they were just in deep poverty. And I think it really affected my dad and made him, you know, he he worked really hard. He was a factory worker. He um, gave us everything he could possibly give us, but he was very crabby growing up. I mean, a, a lot of anger. And um, I find myself now in a married life, I find myself sometimes reacting how my mom and dad would react to each other based on my dad's upbringing, you know? And it took me a long time to sort of forgive my dad because I know that the life that he grew up with wasn't his fault. You know, he didn't have to grow up like that. And I don't think that my dad had the proper tools because he didn't have any intellectual background. He never got to go to college mm-hmm. or do anything. I just don't think he had the, he never knew about therapy. You know, right. he never had the proper tools to try to work his way out of that stuff. And it really wasn't until he was old and dying that he finally had these realization moments. Like he broke down one of the last times I saw him apologizing for something he did to my sister when she was little, um, when he hit her for stealing a comb and he was just bawling his eyes out. Like, and I was like, how did you even think about that now? How did you remember that now? Wow. But, but he, he had this, I have it on tape cause I taped it for my sister so she could see it. I was like, he just had this come to Jesus moment that, that he, you know, but that's how we remembered my dad then doing these things, but obviously it affected him, you know, and he didn't know how to be any other way. 
Right. So it's hard, boy. It's hard. Our, all of our, everybody's got something in their childhood. I don't care if you look at a picture of somebody that looks like their life is perfect. Nothing's perfect. No. So. <laughs> no. But the trick is, and you're right. Everybody has something. So the trick is, can you find a way to turn that something, if it was negative, if it was traumatic, if it was harmful or hurtful, uh, and turn it into pot something positive by you becoming the opposite of that, or or mm-hmm. the ricochet of that, or or reactive to that in a more positive way. And in Maury's case, you heard all that trauma led him ultimately to a life of that would not exploit other people, that would not be about money, money, uh, that would uh, you know not be uh, remind him of that factory life or uh, or any of the things that he had gone through. And he became a teacher. Yeah. And the teacher was like a logical, perfect place for Maury to put all that love that he wanted to give and attention that he wanted to give and academic uh, pushing that his mother finally, his second mother finally gave to him. And, and it's a logical outgrowth. And you see, you know, well, yeah, the, of course he became a teacher. Yeah. Um, it made sense. And, and so sometimes we are shaped by these things in a way that can be positive. So that's what I want to leave you with here today. Just if that's, if Maury's story is any inspiration, say, wow, he went through a lot and look at how wise he ended up being and how beloved he ended up being and, and mm-hmm. how different he ended up being from his circumstances, how different he ended up being. He was not doomed to repeat what was done to him or how he felt uh, or, you know, things that happened when he was a child. We are not doomed by our past. We make our present, we make our future. And the past is, is what's given to us but, and what may be unchanging, but we can change the future. And so that's what we want to leave you with today. And we hope that it, uh, it stays with you and offers some comfort. We appreciate, as always, you're joining us. You can find out more about our podcast at wetuesdaypeople.com on the web, wetuesdaypeople.com. And you can see previous discussions, previous shows, find out about uh, how to get more deeply involved with things. And of course, you can always find out about Tuesdays with Maury, the 25th anniversary edition of the book with the special added chapter at the end, anywhere you search for books. Until we get a chance to talk to you again, on behalf of Lisa Goitz, my producer and friend, I'm Mitch Album saying, see you next Tuesday. Thank you for listening to Tuesday, people. To be part of our conversation, join the Tuesday People community at wetuesdaypeople.com. Subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode and share it with your friends. We look forward to having you with us every Tuesday because, after all, we're Tuesday people.